Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp, and welcome back to the next episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today, I want to go on to perseverate, perhaps, but to make crystal clear the value of the Dutch winter famine of 1944 to 45. There's been so many studies on this in a non-historical aspect. I mean, so it wasn't just a World War II story. It was about a very controlled inadvertently very controlled set of circumstances that began at a precise moment and ended at a precise moment. So never in history, in recorded history is the disclaimer, never in recorded history has there ever been such a time in which people were just cut off from food for the most part. From beginning to the end, you do that with rats in the lab, you do that with mice, you do that, you can do that with you know, goats and sheep and so on and so forth, all that's allowed or was allowed. I'm sure it's questioned now. And so that's where that data comes from. And it speaks, that's where we get our information about human physiology is from the mice studies and the rat studies and a few other things. And that's just the way it goes. Like it or, or not, that's just the reality we live in. So being neutral on that. So around the Dutch winter hunger famine of 44 to 45, this seven-month, we'll call it, six, seven-month period, it's being re-examined, and it was so precise that it started. And I covered the history before why that started, but it's renewing its value again and again and again. It happened in an area that, of people that were a government that was very literate, people that were very literate, so it was an independent variable just about their health. So they could record the births, the deaths, and subsequent events after they were liberated in May of 1945. So, for instance, the sons and daughters who were born to pregnant women. And then a generation later, the sons and daughters that were born to those sons and daughters. And a generation later, the sons and daughters that were born to those sons and daughters. That's incredible. That never happened before. So, what I want to paint for you is now you see this little trough of starvation in time for a large group of people. I mentioned that there's recorded, and it's estimated, about 30,000 people who had died. And I was just looking, just in 2021, there's been a recalibration of how many people actually died in that famine 
in Holland due to the blockade from the Germans. And now they're thinking it's as high as 90,000, but we'll go with 30,000 because that's what the research has been based on in extracting all the the data from that time. And there's 40,000 births. So we've pretty much established time of conception. When did women get pregnant? Did they get pregnant? Were they pregnant before the famine? So that means their entire pregnancy was the duration of the famine that they conceive in the middle of, and therefore they had, let's say, half the famine. They had their first trimester exposed to the famine. But also it speaks to the women prior to conception and their variable, right? So if they were starving and three months into starving, they then conceived and while starving, carried a pregnancy to fruition that completed on the other side, you now have different sections of first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, when were the fetuses exposed, and a little bit about the mother prior to. I'm not going to tease out all the information. I'm going for big picture here, right? So, and I'm going to sort of recount it from the top of my head and tell you the relevance of this and why this is so important. This is the beginning, they didn't have that word, this is the beginning of realizing there are what they call transgenerational markers carried on. So something happened in these kids and something was carried through with these kids to their kids to their kids' kids. So that's three generations, four generations if you consider the uh, original mother. That concept was, was like, well, something else is going on here. But at the time, it was people who had starved, look at their children measure their children and see what the different situations were. And as time went out, this from 1945 and 46, when these kids were born, that then could track them. And luckily, it was in a country that was big military records who, you know, enlisted in the military. So you have their health records. And also they had a lot of health records. So the data was just rich with how did these kids turn out? It ends up, as I mentioned last time, is that And I'm going to generalize. I'm not going to get it down to the trimesters. That is pretty interesting. Those were conceived late, mid to late during the famine. In other words, just for the first three months of that woman's pregnancy, of their gestation. So it's just three months that that gestation was affected by starvation, preceded by three months of the mother starving and then the father starving as well. So those are harder to compare. But Starving parents have conceived at a pregnancy during starvation period, during a famine, and it was subsequently born three or six months later. So those that experienced this three months of the famine in utero, their gestation, that pregnancy, they came away with increased rates of obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and schizophrenia, neurological things. And also going forward in time, these sons and daughters that were in utero during the famine in their 50s developed inability, but a decreased ability to pay attention, kind of an ADHD. They couldn't sustain an attention. This is documented. So they see that as a cerebral aspect. Those who were in utero for the longest period of the famine, the six or seven months, and were born either right at the end of the famine or just a little bit after, they were born small and their children were small. 
but they did not have increased rates of obesity and diabetes. So born small, had small children, generally healthy relative to this population. The other thing about the Dutch winter famine is you can measure in with contemporary time, that is, other boys and girls that were born just outside of the blockade. So now you have aged matched boys and girls and how that was. So it's very black and white comparison, really interesting. And it's never happened. The other aspect, and so this this formulating data, right? So it was in the 40s. This took roughly 30 years because the first report that came out talking about what I'm just telling you about right now, where I'm getting my data, the first report that came out was the Dutch Winter Famine Cohort Study of 1976. 1976, that's 30 years later, in which they were saying, well, that's interesting. Those who were in utero in this particular period of time, and those who were longer, et cetera, et cetera. And they break it down, and, and you can really get in deep into it. But that's not my point here. The point is an idea is brewing that effects of starvation, we're saying right now, and that's, that's half the truth. The effects of starvation can be carried forward in time by multiple generations. So they call that transgenerational effects. Or you can say fetal origins of adult diseases, and there's a lot of it. So it's a whole area that is started because of this particular event. Because of this particular event was so perfect. And I use that that word very tightly, perfect in terms of a structure of comparing a population to another population with one variable that's different, which is food, nutrition. It's not perfect, obviously, in many other ways. So this that's why they're still going back and saying when they're going back three or four generations now, tracking back because it was so well documented. So part of the big points from I in my reading, part of the big points without saying all the different breakdowns of the deficiencies. I find it very interesting that you get into a neurological, a central nervous system, CNS aspect of those that were born late in the famine, in other words, just had the first trimester affected by the famine, that they had CNS, and so they had two to three times the rate of schizophrenia in that population. And they also had, I told you about the tension deficit sort of disorder late in, uh, in the mid-50s and after. But they also had the obesity, the diabetes, and cardiovascular, which are kind of all the same, different ways of looking at them. So apart from that, they compared it to another World War II famine, which is called the Siege of Leningrad. So the Siege of Leningrad was 900 days, and that was September of 41 to 44. I don't know if it was May of 44, but it was 900 days. So the difference is, it didn't start precisely at one day, but it was a pretty narrow beginning. It was siege. It was concerted effort to starve people out. So it was similar enough. And the difference is, is after those 900 days, that's amazing, of starving, of being under siege and having very little food, is that that population in the USSR and in parts of Finland, you have to look up where Leningrad is, by the way, and uh, used to be called St. Petersburg, that when their siege was over, 
there wasn't a lot of food to eat. In other words, it was marginally better not being in the siege relative to nutrition and food. That gradually increased over time, but it was very protracted. So, as you probably know, USSR, 20 million deaths of the USS Soviets died in World War II. So it was a big devastation to the population at large and to the country at large. And so it took a long time for them to climb back from that. There wasn't any allied forces coming in with truckloads of food. It just never happened. It just never happened. They were there to save themselves, but down 20 million people, there wasn't a lot of them that could help themselves survive. So the difference was in comparing the Dutch winter famine to the siege of Leningrad was that in the Dutch winter famine, you had normal population, normal nutrition, normal caloric intake, roughly 1,800 to 2,000 calories per day, to there's no food. And that quickly dropped down to an average of 480, call it 500 calories per day per person in the blockade. Now, the average, as I've mentioned before, is somewhere getting clearly far less than that, which means somewhere getting more than that. But the average is as a population was down to one quarter of what they should have had. One quarter of what they should have had for to sustain life in a healthy terms for a period of about seven months. That explains the 30,000 deaths, of course. And comparing that, the end was the Allies did come and they had tables. If you go on and you Google this, you'll see that the children were taken care of. You know, there was, they had fly-ins. Towards the end, the Germans did allow some food to be dropped by the British, but that was very much to the end. So anyway, the food was there waiting at the sidelines to come in and to help these people. So they, it was an on and off switch, so to say. Uh, one other really interesting thing off to the side that the Swedes accredited with British as well is they're dropping via the British Air Force a lot of their flour. They were kind of the breadbasket for Northern Europe, and they have been for a while. And so there's a time in which they're all starving and happen to be kids and people, but kids in particular, that had Crohn's disease and then went into the famine. You know, now there's just a lot less food, obviously, that their Crohn's went away. So come into those airdrops of Swedish flour, which they could make bread as something real basic just to get caloric numbers up there. Their Crohn's came back and there was a doctor, Dr. Dick. It wasn't the first time he noticed that. He thought that it had to do with wheat and it was teased out that it was gluten, of course. But the reason I bring this up is this is where it was confirmed that a before and after another black and white. They didn't have it and they had it. They didn't have it on a population-wide basis. Okay, then. Why I say that's interesting because often today you hear, well, celiac disease is specific to gluten. That those who have celiac disease now, they often... Here, well, it's the pesticides on the wheat, it's not the wheat, or it's the glyphosate, and so on and so forth. That may be an additive detriment, but this was well before any of those pesticides and the wheat. It was wheat, period. I don't even think there's any preservatives used in that in terms of keeping things dry in the silo and so on. There used to be a mercury aspect to it. I don't think that's used anymore. Okay, so that was interesting as a side. So now you have on again, off again. You now have subsequent generations that are going forward saying, saying, well, look at this generation. Look, what, these are like the parents in this aspect. And so that's very well documented. I'm not going to go into so many 
generations, but I want to say this is where the idea, idea pretty much became confirmed since the famine of transgenerational origins of disease, if you will, of fetal origins of adult diseases, but that are carried from family to family to family. So often when they say, oh, do you have a family history of, do you have a family history of, you say, yeah, I have a family history of this. It really speaks to, not that you picked up these genes from your parents, of course you did, but that you perhaps, this is how I'm taking it now, a little bit of a subjective interpretation, but that you have as part of your family history, it's not etched in stone, it's something that was created by a period of hyponutrition. Now you think in the United States, there was, my parents went through the depression. And so there were clearly periods of times of severe, and they were born right at the time of the pandemic, by the way, 1918, between the humps of the two phases of the first pandemic. So their life started off on a very rocky road. And there's a whole, and then the depression, of course, was a couple of decades later. But in terms of in utero, figure out what that was about. I don't know. But that history is really important. So when you ask about, so what was it like for your mother during pregnancy and perhaps, you know, six months or a year before pregnancy? And there's some parts of the country that are very, very poor. And so what we're seeing, and I'm coming up to this, there was a, a physician, and I believe he's a physiologist as well, a Dr. David Baker in the UK. And he came up with hypothesis. This is back about this time. And his hypothesis was, that an adverse fetal environment, adverse fetal environment, meaning your mother's starving or she's been exposed to a toxin or perhaps she's overeating. Now, that didn't happen then, of course, but it happens now with all the empty calorie foods. So you get a lot of obesity. That would be an adverse fetal environment. So an utero environment. So an adverse fetal environment followed by plentiful food in adult was a recipe for chronic adult disease. So it's the difference between the Leningrad famine and the Dutch famine that one really didn't have much of a change at all. You know, it took generations for them to get back to a viable community, a viable town, a viable social system that they could depend on for health and food. It took a long time for that to happen. Whereas in Holland, it was over in a second. There certainly was over within a couple of days. And supplies were waiting on the sidelines. And the reason that was so compounded, the famine was, it was also the worst winter on record for a long, long time. So the ports were closed. So there wasn't any easy way to get food into that part of Holland, which was exposed to the ocean, which we think would be easy, but because it was all frozen up. So it was a lot of bad cofactors, so to say. Okay. So now we have that. It's the adverse fetal environment followed by the good time followed by, you can have plenty of, you know, the opposite of what they were developed. So there's a lot of hypotheses, a lot of books have been written about fetal matrix and so on, and what happens when the baby's being created, and what phase is that adverse environment? Is it throughout the whole thing, or is it just, you know, one trimester to the other? That's all interesting, but that's actually not where I'm going. I'm going to how are these things passed on to the next generation? So this whole thing of subsequent generations, right? So 30 years later, they finally have this documentation saying, coming out saying, did you know that the longest pregnancies during the famine had the smallest kids and their kids had small, were small kids and their kids' kids were, by and large, small kids? 
And so this plays into the idea of what they call methylation, epigenomics and methylation. We're going to develop those ideas as we go forward. But this is what I want you to know. Bad, adverse fetal environment, bad in utero experience for a prolonged period of time. And they can even say, well, bring this as a contemporary example. They've even done, looked at women who are pregnant in the 9-11 collapsing of the buildings and where they were, if those were close and just their, the shock and the PTSD of that, how did it affect their subsequent? So you can take this example and go to a lot of other aspects. And so you can look at environmental toxins. They were exposed in utero. What happened to them? You can look at very obese women, and maybe they were obese fathers as well. What happened to these kids? What was their in utero experience like? So it opened the door to this particular concept. Really interesting. I wanted to add a little more about Dr. Baker, Dr. David Baker, and where his hypothesis started was that he noticed that there was a lot of heart disease in the UK. This is in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. But he noticed that the heart disease was concentrated in the poorest areas of the UK, of England for the most part. Why is that? So he was teasing out and some of us would, would not have thought beyond that. I said, well, of course, they're malnourished. You're going to have any situation we have in the general population is just going to be worse because they're malnourished. You know, they just never had enough, aren't getting enough, won't have enough, and so on and so forth. But his question that he was pursuing was this. What if the nine months in utero are one of the most critical periods in a person's life, shaping future abilities and health trajectories? Part is a degree of common sense. and thereby the likely path of earnings. He's now connecting economics. He's saying, if you're stunted because you didn't get enough in utero, and that could be cerebrally, it could be physically, in all aspects, that that is directly going to affect your ability to learn. That's going to affect your ability to what education systems you will get into or are capable of getting into, and therefore subsequently will affect your ability to make a viable income. So in that way, you could say the worst of worst truths is the poor stay poor. They don't get enough. And they're in utero and then subsequent children didn't get enough at very critical times of development. The most famous physician was David Barker of this theory. And he always argued inadequate nutrition in utero programs the fetus to have metabolic characteristics that can lead to future disease. They're more likely to become overweight as adults, and they are more likely to suffer from from diseases associated with obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular problems. So I'm going to throw out this question, kind of rhetorical, is that when we hear all these studies, however deep you want to get in, jump into it, you're going to hear it's always obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular, or any order of that. They're generally, if you have diabetes, you're going to have cardiovascular. So it's pretty much the same thing. So my question is this, why is it this? You know, why, you know, and yes, we had elevated schizophrenia by a third. Why is it this? Why isn't it all diseases? Why isn't it arthritis for everybody? Why isn't it gut problems for everybody? No, it's diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease. Interesting, eh? So the famine affected people of all, the perfect thing about this unfortunate time was the famine affected people of all social classes. So therefore, they removed yet one more variable. 
It wasn't that they were a highbrow or lowbrow or had a lot of money before and so on. No, they all pretty much got pulled back down into that 480 calories per day. The famine affected people of all social classes and was followed by a growing prosperity in post-war period, a very quick prosperity, I would add. So the Dutch Hunger Winter is what they call it, the Dutch Hunger Winter Study, from which the results are first published in 1976, shows the effects of intrauterine deprivation and subsequent adult health. Pretty interesting, huh? So we're going to go further on this, and we're going to go jump into another country of a whole different era, and we're going to dig into a few episodes of the Overcalix, Sweden, which is pretty much right at the in. You can it's either in Lapland or right at the edge. It's within the polar circle of uh, Sweden. So it's called the Overcalix study, and that has a lot to do with a Dr. Lars Ole Bigrund. And I've communicated with him. He's probably in his 80s or 90s because he also took this kind of comparison of comparing populations that grew up in surfet, they grew up with a lot of food and life was good, to those who went through these slow growth periods, these critical periods of development, to poverty or famine. So surfet, times of plenty, years of plenty, and years of famine, years of deprivation. And again, another rhetorical question is, which period do you think had the worst subsequent outcome? In other words, the kids that were born from mothers, parents in general, that went through those periods and their subsequent kids. Do you think it was the period that all food was available, plentiful, surfeit, as they say, or the times of documented famine? It was another area in which this culture was highly documented of everything they grew, what they had, what the lifestyle was like. The clergy had a lot to do with that documentation as well. So we'll get into the Overcalix study coming up. Hope you're as interested as I am. I find it really a good story. Take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they're overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email, and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.